Travelers who have come from far to Aslan's table, said the girl, why do you not eat and drink? Madam, said Caspian, we feared the food because we thought it had cast our friends into an enchanted sleep. They have never tasted it, she said. Welcome to the Chronicles of Podcast, where we're doing a chapter-by-chapter chapter deep dive into the Chronicles of Narnia by C.S. Lewis. I'm Kel. And I'm also Kel. Wrong. I'm Chase. Fine. <laughs> Fine. You really want to know I'm Chase, dang it. Well, thank you for joining us, listener, not Chase. Uh, but just a reminder that today we are talking about the fifth book in the series, The Voyage of the Dawn Treader, but general spoiler warning for the whole Narnia series, as well as a heads up that we will go on to tangents into other stories and other parts of pop culture that we enjoy or just know about. Uh, we'll do our best to give spoiler warnings along the way if there's anything too far out there. But today we are discussing The Voyage of the Dawn Treader, Chapter 13, The Three Sleepers. Do we really even enjoy content anymore? I feel like we just consume it. I mean, that's a commentary on a, you know, popular culture that deserves to be, uh, you know, fleshed out. Like, is it even good anymore? Or are we just in too deep? That's a great question, honestly. I've, that, I've had that thought about Marvel multiple times <laughs> in the last year. Yeah, that's that's definitely how I felt about Multiverse. So it's uh, still got faith. I've got faith in Thor. I think Thor is going to be great. I think, uh, you know, I think Black Widow and uh, Multiverse were both meh. Shang-Chi was fun. Yeah. It's, uh, you know, you can't, you can't bat a thousand. You can't. Uh, phase, phase one didn't. And, 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 everyone, and everyone knows that as you age, you know, you, 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 your batting average tends to slip. Your home runs are fewer and far between. No, that's just how it goes. It's just, it's tough when we had the chance to listen to Tony Stark and accept that part of the journey is the end. And we never did. Yeah. Because money. Money. And speaking of money, Chase, transitions, uh, metaphor, uh, summary. Chase, would you like to hit us with a summary? I do not get paid for this summary. Uh, yes, I would love to, Kel. As they continued sailing, uh, the wind never failed. It grew gentler and gentler each day, though, and the sky stretched on, revealing new constellations that no Narnian had ever seen, except for the couple that we'll meet later. Uh, on a particularly beautiful evening, they saw that they were coming up alongside a land of gently sloping hills with an attractive scent coming off of it. And they dropped anchor in a wide bay a bit further from the beach than they would have liked and rode in on some tumbling waves to the beach. They didn't want to explore too far as it was starting to get late, but a little ways inland, Drenian shouted that he saw something that looked like towers or, or maybe it's trees up ahead. Uh, they went to investigate and found something kind of like a ruin. Uh, a wide oblong space of paved stones encircled by gray pillars with no roof. And from end to end ran a long table laid with crimson, crimson cloth. And at either side of it, many comfortable looking chairs. And on the table, the richest banquet they had ever seen. Even better than the banquets thrown in the days of the High King Peter in Narnia. As they walked in among the pillars, they marveled at it and wondered where the guests were. Then they looked and saw 
what what is that at the end of the table? Is that a bird's nest? Is that a beaver that's made its home on the table, or maybe haystacks? Uh, Reepicheep ran up closer and to inspect the masses and determine it's at least not going to fight them. And when they got closer, they could finally see it was three men with their hair grown so long and tangled that they had mistaken them for random stuff. Uh, at first, they wondered if they were dead, but they were war- warm and had pulses, only sleeping. But a very long sleep from the looks of it. Uh, seven years to be exact. They tried to shake one of them awake, and he muttered something about turning back and setting his oars towards Narnia, but fell back asleep. Another one muttered about wanting more mustard, so they've got their priorities straight. They determined that these were the final three lords that they were searching for and confirmed it by looking at their rings and their ornaments. And then they stopped any of the crew from touching the food, determining this must be what brought this magic sleep on them. And Edmund said that they should return to the ship for the night because he didn't like how magical the place felt. Reepicheep said that he intended to sit at the table until sunrise because anyone who avoids danger is a coward and he's no coward. So Edmund and Caspian and then Lucy and Eustace as well also said they'd stay with him. Drinian and the rest of the crew returned to the ship and they ones who stayed took their time picking the right seats at the table since they didn't want to be too close to the sleepers because gross, but also not so far that they can't see them clearly because zombies. Uh, and then they waited through the cold of the night. Finally, as the sky began to turn gray with the sunrise, it happened. A door opened in the side of the hill and a tall girl with yellow hair carrying a light stepped out. It was as if none of them had ever known what beauty meant until they saw her. She carried a candle that shone like starlight and set it down on the table. And for the first time, they saw that a large stone knife that looked ancient and cruel in the middle of the table. All of them stood as the lady approached, and she asked why they sit at Aslan's table but do not eat. And they said they thought that the food had put their friends to sleep. She said they had never tasted it. But when they arrived, they had argued about whether they should return to Narnia or continue it on. And as their fight got heated, one of them grabbed the stone knife on the table, which was not his to do. When he did, they all fell into a deep sleep. One of them asked why, and the girl asked if they did not know themselves. Lucy said it looked like the knife that the white witch had used to kill Aslan, and the girl confirmed it was in fact the same. Edmund said he wanted to believe her, but he wasn't sure he could. Then Reepicheep volunteered to drink to the lady, and once he had, they all began to eat. So if there was any chance for delayed effects, didn't really matter. Uh, Lucy asked why this was called Aslan's Table, and the girl said that she that he had put it there for those who come this far. Some call it the world's end, for although you could sail further, it was the beginning of the end. And they asked her how they could awaken the sleepers, and she said her father could teach them, and pointed to the door in the hillside. They looked, but then the chapter ends. What do they see, Kel? What's in the door? What's in the door? I think, you know, we're led to believe that it's her father. But honestly, since the chapter just ends, how are we going to know? It could be anything. I don't believe in doors, Kel. I mean, what's a door, you know, if not just a removable part of a wall? Would... A door called by any other name still gets you into the next room? 
only if it's called a rose, I think. But what's in a name, you know? Amen. Amen. But Chase, we've we've reached the point in our journey where there is no wind, there is no currents, the waters are still, but somehow they're moving forward. I I guess so. It it really like C.S. Lewis goes for the opposite of the old world, like edge of the world, or it's just a giant waterfall theory. Like there's no movement here. It might as well be like a giant bowl with uh, the sides all still. And it's, I don't know. I, I like the imagery in this first opening. Like it's very like cinematic. Like everything is like coming to kind of a soft, sleepy, you could say, closing. Yeah. And the sunsets are fantastic. Like it's a, it's a sight to behold. Yeah. As we approach the next few chapters, the, the end of the world, quote unquote, uh, i.e. the place where no one has ventured past because we don't know really what Aslan's country looks like in the real world Narnia versus, spoiler alert, the end of the world Narnia. Did it take me to just now to realize that this is a death metaphor? I mean... I think this is a death metaphor. Is this I mean, Reaper Sheep's funeral? Man. I, I don't know. You know, we'll, we'll get there. Uh, I want to, you know, we have, we'll have a lot to say on that subject, I'm sure. Um, but over the next few chapters, there is a lot of really cool things where you have the stillness of the water, you have the wild, and then you eventually get through into the, like, the, the rose petals and, you know, or the, like the flower petal, like waters and approaching the beach and the giant wave that you got to ride over kind of thing. So it's really cool. Uh, but like a trip to Schlitterbahn, like a trip to Schlitterbahn, man. Um, Done. Hey, world's number one water park for a reason. Exactly. But um, we eventually, our, our crew comes upon an island. They see it uh, and they, are trying to find a good place to land, but uh, never really come upon anything. Uh, but they do realize that there is a, a an attractive smell coming from it, which Lucy describes as a dim purple kind of smell. Which, that made perfect sense to me. What didn't make sense to me was that Edmund and Eustace are like, oh yeah, that smells like rot. And... Is that an attractive smell? I mean... Rot isn't good. What? Uh, huh? Maybe they're just trying to guess what purple smells like. As mean, in not, and not, you know, actually smelling the smell that Lucy is smelling. But, um, you know, who knows? But they eventually find a place where they can kind of drop anchor and then take a landing party in. Uh, but Lord Roop... Root did he scoop? Uh, he decides he has seen enough islands. Maybe uh, I mean I don't know if he's actually seen anything uh, because he's been in the dark for years. But whatever, um, doesn't even have eyes. Doesn't even have eyes, man. Uh, but uh, at the end of things, he decides he's he's good. So he's just going to chill on the boat with some other guys, uh, and the main characters are gonna are gonna go inside because plot. 
And so they head on in, uh, they head on to the island and uh, they see what might be, you know, towers and or giants, you know, something, but but probably just a ruin. Yeah. Cal, this chapter is like the epitome of like suspense for no reason. Yeah. Like, so they pull up and he makes a point to tell us that they can't find a good cove to drop anchor in. So they have to like, there's no quick escape. Yeah. They have to put up in a bay that's a little further from the shore than they'd like the waves getting in on their like landing boat are a little rougher than they'd like. They look in the distance and see what looks like it could be giants. They find these dudes that like probably are poisoned. Like it's, like every step of the way on this chapter is like needlessly like setting up as if there's going to be a conflict, but then not paying off a conflict. Yeah. Like the point is that there is no conflict. Correct. It's not exciting. Yeah. And, and again, we we've touched on this a few times throughout this book. There becomes the issue when there is no point when there's no goal when there's no antagonist to defeat when there's no objective to reach kind of thing where if the objective is simply we're going to sail and see if we can find these seven lords when you do what do you do after that like what What's the, why am I motivated to stay here when I know nothing about these lords? Yeah. Part of the like sell of a story that's just a MacGuffin hunt, which is a lot of stories in a (laughs) way, that's what infinity war was. But like part of the sell of it is that once you gather all the pieces or find all the missing people or all this, is going to do something. Yeah. There has to be a point. There has to be a next step of that journey. Like that has to culminate in like those people being saved in like a greater way or like some kind of value being brought upon them or like some kind of greater evil that couldn't have been conquered without the gathered being like taken care of. And instead C.S. Lewis just wants to do a journey for journey's sake. He is, he is reaper cheap. Just Going after adventure for the sake of adventure, not really caring whether it actually ends up anywhere. And right. And, and we'll get to that. I think he I think he even somewhat addresses that, you know, it potentially, maybe it's us looking too much into it with the three sleepers when we get to their story of like, is it a meta commentary a little bit? But we'll talk about that uh, <laughs> as we get there. Are the three sleepers a metaphor for C.S. Lewis's internal dialogue of why did I write this book? I, I mean, honestly, I'm, that's, that's funny. Kind, I like that's that kind of my opinion. But we'll get there when we get there. But first, case we come upon a beautiful table, a table unlike anything we've ever seen, except for in all of the other chapters when we're told about a beautiful banquet unlike anything we've ever seen. Uh, and so here we are. Are you telling me that C.S. Lewis only has like four images? One of them is a tree. One of them is walking. One of them is a beaver. And one of them is a banquet table. 
So <laughs> he does like to bring back the beavers. Hey, this is a uh, you know this is he's not a tame author, you know. He's, he's not. Wild. But uh, so they come upon a table and it's richly ordained with you know all kinds of meats and drinks and fruits and vegetables and wine and again. Why are we serving wine to children? But whatever. It's uh, England. It's Europe. I mean, yeah, but like, still, they're like, it's. There's a difference between it being like Europe and then also being like these are literal children, like ten year olds. Like Campbell, only American children are safer if they're not intoxicated. I don't. I don't know about that. I, uh, I don't know about that either. But they. Uh, they're like, wow, this is awesome. But where are all the guests? Shouldn't someone be eating these foods? And then they go, well, yeah, look at these lumps of hair over here. And I think there there's mold growing on the table. It's uh, is it mold. Is it, is it, it looks like three beavers again. Yeah. The, it's three beavers sitting on a net on a table or a huge bird's nest or a haystack. And it turns out, I kind of wish it had been a just big bird's nest. What if it had been, man? And it was like the the occupants of like occupants of this house were just giant birds. Yeah, this is just their home. What are you doing here? Why are you from our food? We're so far out here because no one else can fly out here. It only it makes sense for us to be here. Wouldn't you have guessed that I came out here to get away from you people? Yeah, unbelievable. But it turns out they're not big birds, but instead. They are men who has hair, uh, their hair has covered their face uh, and has gone down to the table. Their beards are growing past their hands and are uh, beginning to, you know, intertwine with all of the utensils and uh, the food around them, uh, grossly entangling themselves somehow, even though they haven't moved. Uh, Talk about the physics here in a little bit. But at the end of it, they look like a character from the Adams family uh, where they're just covered in hair and you know, it, it is what it is. Yeah. It kind of feels like if they did wake up, they wouldn't be able to get apart and this would be a funny scene. You know, I look forward to it, but I have a feeling chase that they're just going to MacGuffin the hair away. That I have a strong feeling that you're right, Kel. I never read the chapter ahead. But uh, that that would require preparation, my friend. We we put it the bare minimum. Oh, I read this chapter at midnight last night. Big Part up. of why I'm exhausted right now. Hey, you know it happens, my friend. But it, they, it happens they, most times. <laughs> they uh, they see the uh, you know bunches of hair uh, that turns out that they are men, uh, and uh, they're like, are they dead? And Reepicheep apparently is the first person to like actually do something intelligent and reasonable when faced with something like this. And he checks for a pulse. I feel like that's something that like could have come up a lot of times throughout these books. Yeah. They don't use logic very often, but never really think of things like humans would think about them. They think about things like authors would think about them. Correct. So Ribich goes, this one's warm and has, uh, and his pulse beats. And they, turns out they all are, you know, not dead, but just sleeping. And it, and then they realize, oh, 
Chase, it must be an enchanted sleep. An enchanted sleep? Yeah, and Chase, wouldn't you believe it? I, You know, Lucy knew that it was an enchant. It was probably a magical island. She could feel it the moment they landed. She of just course. Didn't. Who couldn't? She just couldn't. She didn't tell anyone else. Uh, Smells like purple. What do you expect? That was code for this land is magic. And this land is my land. uh, This land is... California. To this random island. Yeah. That actually is the plot of the story. It's what if we've claimed everywhere for Narnia because we are Britain. Manifest destiny, Chase. I think America, I think when it's British, it's just called imperialism. But sure. Hey, hey, hey. We just prefer, you know, going under the really cool phrase of like, the sun never sets on the British Empire. And people are like, wow, that's so poetic. Yeah. You know where I to use hard words like imperialism. Uh, man, it's good that we're delving into uh, 18th century politics here. It's, really, yeah. it's about time that we hash this out. People have been wanting this content for centuries, Chase. They wanted people to make commentaries on this stuff, and we're here to provide. I mean, back then, they just didn't have people to make low-stakes jokes about it on podcasts, and that's yeah. why it was so bad. Yeah, agreed. No one was holding you know, m- small bits of population accountable. <laughs> no one was holding 20 people to the fire to really consider their role in uh yeah in no one was holding no one was holding people like a, a few people to the fire 300 years after the fact you're <laughs> welcome everyone after it's all already like past the actual like direct power parts anyways yeah not just past but so far past that it is what you Study in the first part of your history books. It's not even the senior level class. It's the freshman stuff. Yep. That's where we're at. But speaking of freshman stuff, they're trying to, they decide, oh, because they are in an enchanted, you know, sleep that obviously their next task is to break the, this enchantment. And, uh, you know, given our, our hero's uh, propensity to discover how to do things randomly uh, in, you know, a chapter. I'm a little disappointed that they don't just wake them up immediately by, you know, moving spoons around uh, because obviously that was, you know, the way to do it. They just clank uh, their, uh, their glasses on the table a little too loud. And they go, I mean, I mean oh, oh. they were supposed to get back to Narnia. They were supposed to like fill their water goblets up so high. So that if you go, over the top of the rim. Uh, and if you played the, you know, the theme song to the Chronicles of Narnia, then, which I don't know if there is one, but if there was, you'd play that. I think it's Switchfoot. <laughs> it's my favorite secular band, Chase. This uh, is home. <laughs> Saw Switchfoot at ACL. And uh, I was like, man, these dudes are doing the Lord's work. I, I saw like, Switchfoot. Two or three months ago. They're still alive. That's cool. And John Foreman just uh, still out here. Yeah, man. That's good for him. I thought he was one of the sleepers, but. <laughs> there, there's some people in the evangelical community who think he is, but, you know, I don't get into those fights. 
No, dude, no. That's a, you know, my favorite non-Christian Christian band, Switchfoot. Uh, how else are, you know, how else are, is the world supposed to know that Christians can be cool? <laughs> Not people like Switchfoot. How, how will they know if we can't break onto uh, a secondary radio station with other bands? You know, it's a great point. And but we, uh, so we're back and they decide, hey, we're going to you know, try to wake these guys up. And we hear some mutterings from the three of them. One is talking about, you know, I like, I can't go further east. I, you know, let's go back to Narnia. The other one's like, you know, uh, we you know, we need to go in and keep adventuring. We need to see what's out there. And then the third one's like, yo, I need more mustard. Which honestly, from what we learn about them later in this very chapter, it it's sounds right. like they're all on brand. They're all on brand. Um, but they, you know, from these lines, uh, they go, ah, these are our final, uh, you know, three lords and our quest is at an end. Chase, we have finally found all seven of the lords that we definitely knew and we were looking for. And yeah. that was like the, the, the thread that connected this whole book. We that's, have one. That's the plot that we've all been paying attention to. Correct. We have one that is now ruling an island. One that became a dragon and died or got eaten by Edmund or by Eustace. Don't worry about it. We have another one that is a golden statue at the bottom of a lake. We have one who has PTSD and will forever live in terror on a boat because he's never going to set shore on another land again. And then we have three who've been sleeping. We assume they will probably wake up because they're not dead. So I don't assume that. I guess you don't have to, Chase. But I know C.S. Lewis's writings at this point. And he, uh, you know, because we see them on screen, it probably means they're not going to die. If they were off screen, they'd already be dead. That's that's fair. I really wish he had committed to the zombies bit. Man, what a what a twist, you know? It's a uh, it's really a letdown. Like because that is what the suspense of this chapter works towards. Because after they like decide, and we can talk about the decision to stay. Or, We'll leave it a second, but like when they're picking their seats at the table, that that is how I interpreted their worries about where to sit. They didn't want to sit so far down the table, which like, are they sitting so far? Like, is this table so long that it goes over a hill and you can't see the other end of it? I like to think of it like it was Lizzo's concert at ACL a few years ago. Ah, where, 100% that table. Yeah, where like, it you know went over the hill at Zilker Park, and on the way back down, it was still her concert, and uh, you couldn't see the wave go all the way back. It was crazy. It was a lot of fun. That, and uh, split. And uh, you know, it's about it's about darn time, Chase, uh, for a Lizzo reference in this podcast. Uh, but they, yeah, they this table must be massive because it's far like. It's far enough to wait where if they're at the very end, they lose sight of them. Which doesn't make any any sense. If you can see the table from a distance, then you should be able to see the other end of the table from the table. 
Chase, it's not your table. It's not your story. Stop asking questions about the table. We were never meant to do this podcast. There's a there's a lion behind you with like his little claw, like shh. Slits my throat. Yeah, he's threatening to if you ask another question about this table because it's Aslan's table, obviously. And gives me a thousand claw marks down my back, one for any appropriate question I've asked along the book series. <laughs> Every time we've questioned the inerrancy of C.S. Lewis, we get we get another claw mark. Man, that's uh that's the Christianity I grew up with. Bingo. I love love to hear it, you know. There's definitely no weird theology, says Aslan with a gun to my head. <laughs> like uh no, it's so it's just a weird concept, but maybe, you know, maybe this is supposed to be like, you know, the, the classic VBS song where it's a big, big table with lots and lots of food, you yeah. know, in a big, big house with, with lots no and lots of rooms, uh, you know, and so maybe the table just keeps going on and on, but it's also, you know, enough, small enough for you to be able to like see it, but big enough where you can't see the end. You know? Are you saying? On and on and on and on it goes. Yes. Until it overwhelms and satisfies your stomach. Yes, absolutely. That's what I'm saying. 100%. You know. Deep cut for about five people. Insert. uh, How many many VBS-esque songs uh, can we insert into this little frame? Because right now, I mean, Waves of Mercy, Waves of Grace seems an appropriate song to sing with this book actual theme song of this book i think that's what plays as spoiler alert for the last chapter reaper chief goes into aslan's country just as he as he crests all the all the people on the boat start doing like hand motions everywhere we look reaper chief's gone into aslan's place uh but that's a you know that's how it goes but they're like well maybe like Rinse, you know, the first mate that we've got, we've come to know and love. Uh, yeah. I, uh, I don't forget he's a person every time. Every time I see his name, I go, Who are you again? I definitely I stumble over Drinian's name half the time. I'm like, Who? Who? At least Drinian's a cap. Rinse yeah. is just a first mate who doesn't really get any plot line. Uh, but um, he he's like, Well, why don't we eat? And then everyone else is like, Fool, are you stupid? Like, why would we eat something when there's these guys who are clearly cursed uh, and have like fallen asleep or at least, uh, you know, somewhat have just let themselves go? Uh, you know, it, either way, it's not great, but they're like, no, why would we eat this food? It's probably enchanted and will poison us, which is honestly a reasonable thing to assume when you're looking at this scene. I thought that was the case until I read the last few pages. <laughs> and, uh... and it doesn't explain why uh we we get there but uh you know they're they're they end up deciding like hey so we're not gonna eat but uh repa cheap because he is the great adventurer that he is is just gonna sit at the table until sunrise because that's what he does uh and it's an adventure and he doesn't want to let it when he gets back to narnia wink wink uh, if he gets back to Narnia, uh, he doesn't. He doesn't want to leave anything 
where there could have been a mystery left undiscovered, um, which means Reaper Cheap has decided to sail the entire ocean until he's made sure that he has plotted an, an accurate map so that there's no mystery. Or he's just going to sit at this table and figure out if everything's fine. So this is just a big death metaphor for Reaper Cheap. Could be. Maybe this is where they begin to play taps for him instead of Waves of Mercy. Because this is him being like, I've got a bucket list. I'm going to check it off. I don't have enough time to go back to the boat. You know, I, I've heard that a wise man once said, the last great adventure is death. You know? I mean... I mean Albus Dumbledore, but... It's, it's a solid line. It is a solid line, you know. I'm I'm for it. There's a lot of a uh, lot of Dumbledoreisms that are really good. A lot of Dumbledoreisms where you're like, I don't know if you've seen Fantastic Beasts three, uh, but makes you go, are you are you really pure of heart? Yeah, they. Uh, I mean, the fun of learning more about characters is to nuance them, like that's kind of what the seventh book does in the first place, but it uh, definitely plays with it a little bit more than I think the average fan would want. Yeah. Well, see for me, as I get older, the more and more I read Harry Potter and the more and more I, you know, dive into it. When I first read it, I was like, yes, Dumbledore bastion of goodness He's Gandalf. He's always right. And like the, Rita Skeeter, you know, how dare she write this blasphemous book uh, where she's slandering his good name. And then I read it again and I go, I don't know how wrong Rita Skeeter is. She gets yeah, a Rita lot. Rita Skeeter's got some points. She's also a great headline writer. Great headline writer. Uh, no, the kind of journalist that the wizarding world needs because they are a very corrupt society. Yeah. She knows how to catch an audience, but also she's not wrong in most of her things and like probably have better boundaries when working with children. And you realize like Dumbledore was really aware of a lot of things and you go, man, he, uh, he knew that Quirrell was Voldemort and still let him teach and still let Harry go and fight him as an 11 year old. Okay. Hey, you know that there's a monster in the castle and you're just going to let Harry go fight it as a 12-year-old. Yeah. Okay. Hey, so you know there are Dementors about to kill an innocent godfather to Harry Potter and uh, kill an innocent hippogriff. And you know who you're going to entrust with it and with the fate of time travel to 13-year-olds. Okay. So you know, you know, and I could, you could do this with every single book. And you're like, yeah. this dude's pure of heart. And then also, like, the assumption that you're the only person who knows enough to get the job done and that you should wield all the power to get that job done. Like, it, it's still kind of fascist. It's, it, it's one of those things where, like, his, he is still operating under the for the greater good mantra. He just happens to actually be right in knowing what the good is. But, like... He easily couldn't have been. Yeah. We shouldn't make that assumption 
So Rita Skeeter was right. That is the plot. Of, that's the, <laughs> that's where we're landing. Because Rita Skeeter was right. You know, this is the last we'll go into the Fantastic Beasts. My big prediction, there's not even going to be a duel between uh, Dumbledore and uh, Grindelwald. He's like, Grindelwald's just going to give up because that's what Rita Skeeter said is what happened. I, I think that is what happened. Like, Look, not gonna lie, I have erased most of the most recent Fantastic Beast movie from my mind because it was not groundbreaking in any ways that I found yeah. helpful. But uh, the way I interpreted the end of that book was essentially that, oh, it all happened in their heads <laughs> or the end of that movie. Maybe, but it, is that any reason that it wasn't still real? Boo. Thanks. If you're going to set me up like that. That was a good, I didn't even see myself set the ball. That was muscle memory. Oh yeah. No, you, you laid the trap for yourself and I just sprung it. So, but speaking of traps, uh, the, the gang decides to join Reaper cheap in his uh, quest for adventure, even Eustace, who's very brave uh, in this moment. And, you know, none of the other things that have happened so far, have made him brave, but sitting at this table for sure made him brave. But uh, they, they decide, you know, do what we talked about earlier and they look for a spot at this table. That's not too far, but not too close, but it's just right. It's right next to Goldilocks. Um, They're chilling. She's also asleep on the table. Is the lady that walks up Goldilocks answer? No, but I mean, uh, if you want to go literal about it, she does have Goldilocks. But uh, this is where some cool imagery comes into place, but it also like, it's really cool things that fall in line with no explanation from C.S. Lewis, uh, where he just introduces things and expects the reader to go, wow, that's neat. Where, like he said at the beginning of the chapter that, you know, the waters are growing still and, you know, there's different constellations. Um, than what they've ever seen. And they look outside and the stars are all different. They're in different positions from the last time they'd noticed. So they're in a part where, you know, the astrological wonders of the world are not making sense. Uh, And like the stars are not staying in place, which is leading to a really cool reveal that this girl who comes walking up from on this other side of the hill, who's carrying a light, who has you know, beautiful golden hair who they say like, man, we've never seen beauty until we've seen her. Uh, And she's, you know, seems to be radiating light from her. Uh, She, spoiler alert for the next chapter, is going to be revealed to be a star. And so it's cool that like these stars moving around in this place are actually, you know, sentient beings that can like come in and move around that's kind of neat, but it has no impact on anything else ever again. Yeah, no impact on anything else ever again. Also, doesn't make sense in the landscape of Narnia. Like, I can accept that Narnia is a flat Earth. That's more or less fine to me for a fictional world. Um, it is less helpful when the stars still move and patterns because that's kind of a 
turning globe thing. And also, if they change patterns, that assumes that you are like they would be changing patterns in other places because, like, perspective, like when you move, the perspective shifts in unison because that's how perspective works. Yeah. It's a. Uh, Agreed. Doesn't make sense, Cal. This is where this cool imagery begins to fade away and like not make sense because C.S. Lewis doesn't explain any of these things. It could, I could, I could even get on board if they had like crossed some magic threshold where like the horizon, like the water and the sky somehow meld, and now there's like these intermingling of the stars with the, you know the 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 water and the sea because they had crossed some threshold and now like the stars from Narnia and from the like mainland look like they're staying in place but they're really like in this cosmic world or this in between world sure whatever but there's just none of it so you're left with weird astrological questions and they're just you know they just accept it but uh it's fine. Just as C.S. Lewis moves on, so will we. Uh, and they're, you know, they're chilling. She comes in before them with a, you know, beautiful silver candlestick set on the table with a candle burning there. And it's at this point that Lucy notices something lying lengthwise on the table, which had escaped her attention before. Something that you feel like you probably would have noticed. If you're Lucy and you're remembering like one of the most traumatic moments in your life and you see a knife of stone, sharp as steel, cruel looking and ancient looking. Yeah. Just, you know, Chekhov's knife just hanging out. It's uh, They've got to make sure they introduce the knife before the story that happens a paragraph later. Like this is on level with if the white witch's scepter had been in the center of the table and yeah. no one noticed until just now. Like it's, it's tough because Lucy is the only one who would have noticed that this is the knife that killed Aslan, but you would have noticed. Yeah. That is the memory. Like you don't have, like there are no stone knives, especially ones that are ancient looking and like, have markings and runes and stuff on them as it's described in the, you know, line the list in the wardrobe. You would notice this and go, hold on. I don't feel good about this. Let's leave. Yeah. Also is the table underneath the red tablecloth and all this food and stuff. Is it a stone table? Is it a stone table? And again, I don't think you're going to get the answer to this question. I think I think it's implied would hold up. I think it's implied that it kind of is, but also remember the stone table was under Aslan's how in the previous book. Well yeah, it's still broken. It's still broken, so it's not, but it kind of is. But also it's a big big table with lots of lots of food. Yeah. So, the big big house with no roof. Yeah, and a big big yard where Reaper Chief can play football. Touchdown. There you go. Uh, but she sees this knife and goes, huh. And then says nothing and keeps just looking at this beautiful woman. And she says, travelers who have come from afar to Aslan's table 
why do you not eat and drink? And they said, well, Caspian goes, well, we don't want to be poisoned and die. And yeah. that's a fair response. Makes sense. Seems and, right. All the yeah, evidence and, they have says this table puts people to sleep. And she says, well, they never ate of it. And Lucy's like, oh, okay. Well, then what happened to them? And they just believe her. Uh, She's the, beautiful, Cal. Therefore, yeah. believable. Well, I'm glad you say that because Edmund's going to bring up a really good point here in a little bit, but then immediately forget about it. Uh, so she tells the story that seven years ago. So I guess, you know, if if they've been, you know, journeying for 20 years or whatever we said a few chapters ago, uh, you know, like eventually they found their way to this island. Three of them did uh, all on the same boat. And they said, all right, let's chill here for a few days. Uh, and one of them says, hey, let's just, you know, we found this beautiful table. We found this beautiful food. Let's just end our days here in peace. Let's rest here. And then one of them says, no, we need to, you know, set sail back for Narnia. Maybe Miraz is dead. Maybe, you know, which at this point probably. Um, and then we need to like, let's, we need to head back to Narnia and like report what we've done. And then the third is a, you know, he's the Reaper chief of the group and says, no, we need to, we are men and tell Marines, not Bruce, but we need to go after adventure. And, you know, we, we, we keep adventuring. We keep going and until we, you know, seen what's behind the sunrise and they have this argument and uh, they keep, they, they keep arguing. And one of them grabs the knife of stone uh, and would have fought with his guys over this, you know, inability to compromise or make a decision. Very arbitrary moment that I guess quit, Never. quit to fight these telmarines. Yeah. And because it was like, what a wild thing to jump so quick. Look, if I can't agree with my roommates where we're going to dinner, I don't shoot them. Sure. And granted, even let's take this to a point where it's like a significant decision. Say it's like you. We're going to dinner is a very significant decision, Cal. How dare you? Where's my knife? My apologies. My bad, bro. But like, say it's like. You and your family are deciding, hey, we need to figure out where we're going to live. Someone's like, hey, let's go to Denver. Someone's like, hey, let's go to New York. Someone's like, hey, let's go to you know Florida. And they all have significant, they all have reasonable like understanding of why to do each thing. I mean, you and, could say that if they were going to Dallas-Fort Worth area, they could DM the very podcast that they're listening to for help with finding a home or selling could. one. At Chase Hansen, the realtor. I mean, that is not the at, but I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna at, put the at on there. At realtor Chase Hansen. At <laughs> also not the, it. At the real Chase Hansen tur. Just, just go to at Chronicles of Podcasts. I manage that too. <laughs> at Hansen, the real Chase tur. <laughs> yeah, that's it. You guessed it. Crazy. I'm just you know any combination of Chase Hansen the and realtor something will pop up. I, I look, if you Google that, you might be able to find me to be honest, sure. but it's true. Sure. But all that to say, like you don't with people that you love and care about and you're making big decisions, you don't just jump to murder. Right. Sure. You do. But you know, maybe you do, maybe it's the influence of the knife itself, 
But then that, you know, brags, uh, you know, a whole nother question of, of how these things happen. But as soon as he touches the knife, they all fall into this enchanted sleep. Uh, and the, like until the enchantment is undone, you know, but I have several questions here. The first is, let's, you know, the one I mentioned earlier, and I think it is, uh, you know, I like to think of this as the meta commentary of the Narnian series as a whole, but particularly this book and like C.S. Lewis's idea of like what to do here. Cause it could be a thing where he goes, listen, this is a great spot. Like that. Let's just end here. Let's rest and find the, you know, the good times, right? They're at the end of the world. This could easily be the place of rest. This could easily be the thing, the place where you're like, man, let's just chill here and enjoy what we've done. And like in Narnia and peace. There's something or, poetic about ending at Aslan's table. Ending at Aslan's table. Or you could be like the second guy who goes, no, remember how good Chronicles of Narnia, the line, the witch in the wardrobe was. That's what everyone remembers. We need to go to there. That's the big deal. Everyone liked that. No one really liked, or like, you know, there's, there's hit or miss with the other ones. Uh, but like, that's what we need to return to. We need to make sure that that's the point of emphasis that we put, we're always charging is Jesus is Aslan and Aslan is not a tame lion. We need to make sure that people know. And then you have the third guy who goes, no, there's still more stories to tell. There's still something further out here. And yes, we are approaching the end of the world, but we're not there yet. So let like, what do we do? I think we write two more books, Kel. I think we squeeze as much plot into two more books as we can. Only one Lewis, of which that I consider good. C.S. Lewis grabs a stone knife, holds it to his publisher's throat and says, you will make these books. <laughs> and his publisher says, okay, we'll make more money. Great. I mean, yeah, it worked. So, Get it. Go uh, but my second point they're, the rules of the knife are never explained to them. They yeah. just got there. How are they supposed to know? Like, granted, don't kill people for indecisiveness or, you know, and uncompromising values. But also, how are, how are they supposed to know that this was, like, going to freeze them in an, an eternal sleep? Yeah, they, they weren't. They're not Lucy. They weren't there. So they wouldn't have recognized this knife. It's a... Uh, yeah, I mean, sure, plot. Sure, it, it is what it is. It, it's fine. We will give as much explanation to this as C.S. Lewis does. I mean, it's really just an excuse for them to ask, well, what's so special about that knife? That's not a knife, no. This is a knife. Crocodile <laughs> uh, Dundee is one of the hairy men. <laughs> which, like... The whole thing that they're trying to build is like the reason that this is the special knife is because, like we mentioned earlier, this is the knife that was used to kill Aslan. And it takes some work to get it out of her because she's, they're like, well, why would that do that? And there's like, well, don't you know? And then Lucy's like, well, I think I recognize that knife. And it's, He's like, yep, all very thing. coy. It's all very playful for no reason. And it's uh it's fine. It's yeah. it's okay. It's fine. 
And then, I like the imagery of it, as I'll talk about in a minute. But uh, right. at the same time, eh. But then the so Edmund has a really great paragraph, a great line, and I think brings up a lot of significance. And then they just move forward. They like and they pretend like his valid question is not valid because he's looking really uncomfortable, especially as the mention of Aslan's death, because it was his fault that Aslan had to go and die. Like it was because of Edmund and his choices. So he knows the significance of, you know, just trusting people who you shouldn't trust and betraying those who you should. Especially women who offer you food. Like, right. He goes, look here, I hope I'm not a coward about eating this food, I mean, and I'm sure I don't mean to be rude, but we've had a lot of queer adventures on this voyage of ours, and things aren't always what they seem. When I look in your face, I can't help believing all you say, but then that's just what might happen with a witch, too. How are we to know you're a friend? He has done this before. He has seen someone who is beautiful, who he is trusted, who, you know, promised food and rest, and ended up not delivering. And ended up leading to the downfall of Edmund and other people and the death of Aslan. Well, Kel, you questioning me is just a sign of your lack of faith. That's basically what the girl says. She says, you can't know. You can only believe or not. What, like, reasoning has she given? What, you know, backup has she provided to say, you should believe me? I have the knife that killed Aslan. What more do you want? That's actually not something encouraging to me. Yeah, look, public service announcement. If you're in a community and the answer to your questions is you're you you asking that just means you don't have enough faith, that might not be the healthiest community for you to be in. No, well, it this is the equivalent of like where it's like, hey, you know. These guys who like who these these enchanted men who fell asleep, I've told you how they fell asleep. They grabbed this knife. I am the one who owns this knife. This is the equivalent of being like, hey, these guys who are all dead, who have bullet wounds, I have a smoking gun, but you need to trust me that I'm not the one that shot them. Man, I have this gun. These people are dead. What happened? Like, you'll have to believe that it wasn't me. Like, this is it makes no sense, you know? It's it, like, but they just to go, okay, we believe you. Okay. And, and Reaper Chief is like, hey, I will, you know, I'll be the honorable and adventurous one here. This is an honorable and adventurous Reaper Chief. Yeah. This is dumb. Like, she's given no reason unwise. for you to be faithful. But he, like, just, you know, he's like, all right, Caspian, I'll drink the flagon. And Caspian's like, dope, cool for you. And he just chugs it. And then nothing happens immediately. And so they decide, Oh, must be safe. Even though poison, you know, could take a long time to get to your stomach. Whatever. They don't know how long it took for those guys to fall asleep. You have no idea. And so they all chug and they all start eating. And, uh, you know, Lucy's like, hey, why is this called Aslan's table? And she goes, and and it, it, it turns out, as with so many other things in the Chronicles of Narnia, should they trust this person? No. Did they trust this person? Yes. Does it work out in the end? Yep. Yeah. Should it have? Probably no. It doesn't matter. But here we are. Um, story. It turns out this girl is good. And she is actually, you know, benign. Uh, and Lucy asked, why is this called Aslan's Table? And she said, it was set here by uh, uh, it was set here by his bidding for those who come so far, which at this point is eight, 
you know, or whatever. <laughs> like, um, some call this island the world's end. For though you can sail further, this is the beginning of the end. Then they ask about the food, and it ju- they just say it's just renewed each day. Um, and they talk about these stories of in their own world uh, of of people who you know in, in their in Earth who have gone under enchanted sleeps. And the only way that you can, you know, dissolve the enchantment is to be, you know, he had to be, he had to kiss the princess. This is Caspian talking and he's wow. immediately going from, we're kind of scared to, Hey, let me spit game and see what we can get here. <laughs> did you take this and as him asking if they could make out? Is that. I did take that because look at her response. Cause she, he goes in that story, he could not dissolve the enchantment until he had kissed the prince and she responds. But here it's different here. He cannot kiss the princess until he has dissolved the enchantment and she's like no we'll make out you just gotta dissolve the enchantment first and he's like right on then let's figure out how we can dissolve this enchantment let's do this thing and and the girl's like i'm with you my father will show you how and everyone's like your father where look uh and trying to distract the reader from the fact that she and uh caspian are you know like blink there they've got nala and simba eyes right now rolling through the weeds uh looking at each other in the jungle uh about to you know make a pride of their own uh what what are those flowers doing in the air don't worry about it especially it says special effects uh but uh yeah they're definitely just like openly flirting and they will end up together spoiler alert is that how this? <laughs> I did not know that. Oh yeah, no. Spoiler alert for the end, and then we need to get further up and further in. But spoil like she is going to become Caspian's wife and sire children through him. So it's like, there you go. Uh, well then, well then. Uh, so this works. Uh, but uh, I'm going to dive further up and further in for us real quick. Mine is the idea of being frozen in time. And it's this concept that you see in a lot of fiction, whether it's Sleeping Beauty or, uh, you know, Star Wars with uh, Han Solo. It's this idea that comes up quite a bit where you have character or characters who are frozen uh, through some sort of curse, some sort of, uh, you know, magic uh, or, or, or something that happens that the character, the main characters have to solve uh, so that they can keep moving forward. But it's this idea that you are stuck in a place, whether it's through the literal embodiment of indecision with these men, they're frozen because they can't make the decision or something else, uh, be it they're frozen by their own consequences, they're frozen by a curse, whatever it might be. It is the uh, act of having to move forward through it and you are no longer able to just sit and what you once did. All right. And for my further up and further in, I just wanted to briefly talk about the, uh, the knife in the room. Uh, and more specifically, the kind of parallels to uh, the cross and the Christian imagery that C.S. Lewis is kind of stirring up here of having the instrument of Aslan's death as the centerpiece of this table. Uh, so, the idea of the instrument of torture, uh, the this place of sacrifice becoming a symbol that unites people is central to the Christian tradition, right? Like the cross is probably the most recognizable symbol in the world because of 
the shared meaning of what happened there. And so to bring the tool that was used to put Aslan to death for him to then be able to rise again and kill the white witch and all this stuff for that to be put at the center of the table, this place of meeting and in the Christian tradition, uh, the table Christ's table is communion. That's this other liturgical symbol, this other uh, place of community and meaning and, uh, and value within the church. Like, that being centered around the sacrifice that Aslan put is a meaningful symbol. Uh, so I just wanted to pull out some of these parallels here to, to the cross and some of the imagery that C.S. Lewis is playing with as he uh, tells his story and tries to bring this thing to a slow grinding end. Speaking of slow grinding end, if you were hoping that this was the end of this podcast, don't worry. We still have several more chapters in this book, and we still have two more books after this. And so if you want to keep up with this, keep up with us on the Chronicles of Podcast. Make sure you share it with your friends. Follow us on social media at the Chronicles of Podcast on Instagram. Uh, share, uh, Come rate and review us anywhere you find podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Audible, Spotify. Give us a five-star rating. Share it with your friends. Let us know what we can do well. What, let us know what we can do better. Uh, let us know the things you like. Um, interact with us. Tell us what we can you know, help out with. And let us know what you're most excited about with the end of this book and the upcoming uh, you know, final two books of the series. But in the meantime, Chase, we got to find a way to get your beard and, and your hair shaved because you're, you're starting to look like a haystack, my friend. I know. It's just crazy. Unruly. 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 And on that note, See you next week. Bye. <laughs> that's that's fair. I I have heard that J.R. Tolkien thought through his books as a call sheet. Yeah. And top of that call sheet, surprisingly, Gollum. Not surprising at all. He carries the movie. <laughs> He's acting against himself. It's a... Uh, Really, really great word there.